our children's minister, Faye Scott, has some 34 or 35 of our children with her at a retreat, along with about 15 adults. So they are gone this morning, but we have children's worship, kids' worship for those who are here. Now, we have been moving through the book of Ephesians, and we are now in chapter 6, and the text begins with finally this morning. So we're wrapping it up. Next week, we're going to deal with prayer and the personal remarks that the apostle makes to those who are at Ephesus, and that will wrap up this great letter of the apostle Paul to the church at Ephesus. So it's the winding up kind of thing that's happening today. He is summing up the truths that he has spoken. He is challenging the church, and he is encouraging them to great work for the gospel. And uh, here we have verse 10, where I'll begin reading in Ephesians chapter 6, okay? Now, once I finish next week with the book of Ephesians, we're going to jump into Come Down for Christmas, all right? That's going to be our theme in December, come down for Christmas. And we're going to take the hymn of descending in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. And line by line, we're going to go through this Sunday by Sunday and talk about how Jesus came down for Christmas and how we come down as well. The attitudes that Jesus had the text begins with, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then the hymn stanzas begin. That's how most of the translators break it out now. It'll be in a little poem in your NIV. And uh, we'll just go through that poem and talk about the attitudes that Christ had. So that is going to be the Christmas series, all right? And today now, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, Take up the shield of faith with which you can ex extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So there you have the full armor of God that I memorized as a boy, and it's still in my mind in the King James Version, so I'm sure you're going to hear a little bit of the old King James Version as I talk about this text this morning. A painting made its way to Louisiana 
You may have read about it. Someone purchased it for under $100, brought it here to our state. An art collector in New York got interested in this painting called Savior of the World. It had been copied more than 20 times by 20 different artists. Everybody assumed this was a copy. And here in Louisiana, the copy was sold for $10,000 to this art collector who took it back to New York. Found a person who specialized in restoring old art. A professor at New York University and gave the painting to her for restoration. She was working on the painting, peeling off the varnish and the extra layers of paint on it. And she said she uncovered the curls on the head of Jesus. And she got weak. And she said it began to shake. Because the curls were a signature of Leonardo da Vinci. And how he painted those was very unique. And she knew it very well. And she immediately called the owner and they sent it to people who investigate art to see if it is authentic. And they did an x-ray of the picture that is here before you. And they found something interesting in the x-ray. The thumb had been moved. The right thumb of Jesus had been moved. Originally it was painted in a little different position. And it had been repainted in another position. Well, this repainting of the thumb of Jesus in this painting of the Savior of the world is very well known in the art world as something that Leonardo da Vinci himself did in the original of this painting. And the experts have concluded that this is indeed the last Leonardo da Vinci sold here in Louisiana for $10,000 this week, auctioned off in New York for what? $450 million. And the painting is the savior of the world. Now his right hand is uplifted. The thumb is in the position that Leonardo da Vinci painted it in the second time. And in his left hand is this globe, which represents what? The world. He is Salvador el Mundo, savior of the world. And in this left hand, he has the world. When you were a child, maybe you sang, he's got the whole world in his hands. Did you ever sing that? He's got the whole wide world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. What's the second verse? You and me, brother, in his hands, he's got you and me, sister. In his hands, he's got you and me, brother. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. I want you to be there now today, okay? He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and he's got me in his hands. So in the left hand here in this picture where Jesus was holding this globe is you. This is a very biblical confession because the Bible says that all things came from him and in him all things hold together, that he sustains or upholds 
all things by the word of his power. And it's talking about Jesus Christ our Lord. So he upholds all things by the word of his power that everything is sustained in him that you are in his hand. Until you have that sense of position in the hand, the protective and empowering hand of Christ, you can't really get what's going on in this text, okay? So you've got to be there. You've got to nestle in. You are in his hand, all right? Now, thank God for his strength. We're going to do Thanksgiving today. So we know we're in conflict. We know we're in a battle. We know that every day when we go to work, when we go to school, that there's a spiritual battle going on. We realize that. We're in this battle. So we're thanking God today for his strength because we need to be strong in him and in his mighty power according to this text. We can't win this battle. Only he can. So thank God for his strength. The apostle has been marching through all these relationships that are of such great importance to everybody. The relationship of marriage, the relationship within the family as parents and children, the relationship at work. And maybe as we've worked through these relationships in looking at this letter, you felt a little bit of despair or a little bit of regret or maybe some guilt as you looked at your own relationships and thought, you know, they aren't like the apostle described them to be. And I haven't maybe done very well at making my relationships fit this description, how the Lord wants them to be. So when we get here, we're to take all those relationships and realize we are in the hand of Christ and we must depend on his strength and his power. There is a trap here, okay, for everybody. We know the Christian is at war in the world, that there is a conflict going on between the forces of good and the forces of evil, that the gospel itself brings out conflict and did so in the life of Jesus. And sometimes it happens in us. Sometimes we mistakenly think that we are fighting flesh and blood. The apostle says here, you wrestle not against flesh and blood. And he uses this metaphor of wrestling, which he does in other places. Wrestling is a very personal, intimate sport, okay? It's like right here. Okay, you wrestle not against flesh and blood. The battle is not against human beings. Sometimes we think it is. We go to work and we think this person is out to get me and I've got to win against this person. My real battle is with this person or maybe in the family. We're thinking that it is really one-on-one me against him or me against her or in our larger relationships. And we suppose that our battle is against flesh and blood. We suppose that because we want to fix the problem ourselves. And we think if our biceps are large enough, or if we are fast enough, or if we are smart enough, we can win this thing. But the teaching is here, it's not flesh and blood you're wrestling against. You you aren't strong enough, you aren't fast enough, and you aren't smart enough. It's not you. That's why you've got to rely on the Lord and His mighty power. You're not wrestling against flesh and blood. Now, you know this yourself on the inside because you have the struggle that goes on within. You don't have to look for evil somewhere out there in the world. 
You find it in your own mind. You find temptation. You find evil desires in your own heart. We know this about ourselves. These things are in us, and they draw us downward and away from Christ. The Bible sometimes calls this the flesh, but it's not the flesh which is like this flesh here. It's the fallen nature of man. It's the old nature of a Christian that is seeking to exalt itself and have supremacy in your life. It's those old tapes, the things you learned before you knew Christ, the ways that you were before you knew Christ. These things come back on you. You know that your struggle is about attitude, it's about perseverance, it's about faith, it's about your spiritual condition, it's about you learning to love that spouse that God has given you, learning to be patient with those children God has given you. All these are spiritual qualities. So you know fundamentally that your personal struggle is not against flesh and blood. You're not at war with your spouse or with your children. It's against these spiritual realities. And here they're called principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in high places. So we have these spiritual realities that are truly the realities with which we engage every day. Now you know too that your spiritual victory, your spiritual victory, is all about you trusting God, you being in prayer, you being in the Word. You realize that. You know the things already that bring you down spiritually. You know them. And so we got to agree with the apostle. Our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It can't be won with superior muscular strength or superior intellect. This battle's got to be won by God himself. So the apostle at the end of the letter is throwing us back on the power of God, on his strength. He wants us to trust here in the strength of God as we do our battle because this is a battle that is beyond us. Not only is it personal to us that we know the spirit is the main warfare, the main place where the conflict arises. But it's also true in the principalities and powers that are mentioned here, the authorities and the rulers. And these describe the fallen systems of our world. You may have wondered about God so loved the world in John 3, 16. He's talking about the people in the world. But in 1 John it says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. That is the fallen world, the systems of the world. And here they're being referred to as the principalities and powers. We all know that humans are sinful and that that's a universal truth. You are a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners. Well, everything we touch then is tainted with our sin. We have no perfect, sinless systems in the world. They all are corrupted because humans are part of them. If you had a perfect organization and I joined it, it would not be perfect anymore right? Because I'm a mess, just like you're a mess. And if you think you've got a perfect organization, just hang around for a minute. Pretty soon you'll realize it's not perfect. That's true about everything that humans create. Every system they create, every structure they create, it gets polluted by sin. You just mark it down. 
It can be an educational system. It can be a college that started with great ideals. It can be a government that started with great hope and expectation. But every, every human system is corrupted by the sinfulness of humans. Our forefathers knew this. The founding fathers knew this. They understood that men were sinful. The division of government into three wings, into three parts, legislative, executive, and judicial, was because they knew humans were vulnerable to the corruption of power. And if there were no checks and balances in the government, then the government would go awry. And so these were deliberately sewn into the fabric of our republic so there would be checks and balances against the sinfulness and corruption of humans. It's just true. Your battle's not against the boss or other employees. You're fighting spiritual forces at work that are alive and they are real in the structures of our world. Some of you have great idealism in your teaching and in the work that you're doing in the world. And you entered this job thinking, I'm going to really make a difference. And maybe now you become discouraged because the work is harder than you ever imagined. You ran, run into things where, where people just don't want to change. And, and the old systems won't change. I think sometimes it's like jello. You, you think you're going to be able to go in there and make a difference. And you hit the jello, which is sort of the shadow government. That you're dealing with. And the truth is that oftentimes that shadow government, it's not what you know, it's who you know. If you know the right people, you can get things done. If you don't know the right people, it's really hard to get things done because it's really not responsive to what you know, it's who you know. Now that's a sad truth, but in fact it is a truth. And you know what it does? It gives those who are in the know, who are privileged, and the companions of power, it gives them a leg up. In other words, it's not fair. It's not really equality. Not everybody has the same chance. Why? Because people have begun to serve themselves in the system instead of serving the public or serving the people. That's an example of corruption that happens. And I have seen that example here in our city, but it's not unique to our city. It's everywhere. Everything humans create has this taint of sin upon it. And because we are proud and arrogant, because we are greedy and selfish, because we have these qualities of character that are fallen and broken, pretty soon we make the system serve our greed, our need, and all of a sudden it's about us instead about the people that it was created to serve. It happens to schools, it happens to cities, it happens to government. See, what you're fighting out there in this work to do good is the principalities and powers. And you can't do it. And it's not the human beings. Sometimes we think it's them, but it's not. It's, it's the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. What does that require of us? Great patience. Now, now, there's a third thing that's mentioned here, and I want you to see this. You're not wrestling against flesh and blood. You're wrestling against the spiritual fallenness in your own nature, the, the spiritual corruption that happens in every human system, and against the devil, the enemy of your souls, who goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 
And this is very personal. He wants you down. He wants you out. He wants you gone. He wants to compromise your witness. He wants to pull you down from that place where you are. He wants to bring you down. And he's working hard to do it. In other words, evil is not passive in the world. It is active. And he's actively seeking to harm you and hurt you. And the devil aims high, somebody said. And I think that's true. David the king fell the temptation. If the devil can bring somebody down from the top, that's that's a great accomplishment for him. And so if you're in a high place, you remember that. That, that he aims high. Tell you something else about, about his work. Sin piles up fast. You know, you think you're going to make this one lie. You're going to do this one deed. You're going to fix these books just this way. And all of a sudden, you've got to do it again. And then there's another lie to be told until it snowballs into something that you can no longer manage. Sin aims high and sin piles up fast because the devil works hard to bring us down. So you can't do it. In your own strength, you are not able to fight this battle. You're not smart enough or strong enough. So you've got to rely on the Spirit of God, His power, His mighty strength. You've got to. If you're going to win... If you're going to be successful in the Christian life, if you're going to live the way you know you want to and the way you know God wants you to, you've got to rely on him. So what are you going to do? You're going out, not fighting flesh and blood, but these principalities and powers. How are you going to do it? Well, that's what this armor is all about. So thank God for his strength and thank God for his armor. Now, the Apostle Paul probably had a Roman soldier with him, maybe at all times. I don't know. Uh, there beside him. Some people think he might have been chained to a, so, a, a soldier. So he had this living illustration next to him, this Roman soldier with all the equipment on. And he takes that and he turns it into this teaching about what you need to be successful in your Christian life. How you're going to succeed in that place God has called you. And you got to put it all on. Okay? I'm going to mention six things. There's really seven when we count prayer. You've got to put it all on. All of these things are required for your success in the battle against the spiritual forces that rise up in your own heart, in the structures around you, and even Satan and his lies. So what are these things that you must put on? To put on the full armor, what do you do? Well, he starts with, you gird yourself with truth. You put on the belt of truth. Now, this is a common teaching in the Scripture that you are to gird yourself and get ready for battle. They wore flowing garments back then, not blue jeans and spandex, okay? And those garments were long enough and they flowed around the legs enough that if you were an athlete or if you were a workman or if you were a warrior, you had to take care of that. You had to gird yourself if you were about to do some lively activity and difficult labor. You had to gird yourself with truth. So this belt of truth is the first thing he mentions. 
Now, I do believe that truth is in Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, just like he said, and that he is the fundamental truth of the universe, that that Jesus represents the heart and core of truth, and that I am to be anchored in him, that he holds me together like a belt holds me together, okay? So I believe that's true. So I must dawn my reliance upon the truth which is in Jesus. But there is another step I need to take here because the Apostle Paul's already talked about it. He's already said, stop lying to one another. That's how the force of of the phrase is. He's already said, speak the truth to each other. He's already emphasized how important honesty is for the Christian warrior. So you got to gird yourself with personal honesty. You've got to be a person of truth, not a person of deception, not a person of lies. You've got to be a person of truth. If you're going to win this spiritual battle, you cannot win it with deception or fraud or lies. You can't win it by being dishonest. See, you may think you're making progress by telling the lie, but the lie is undermining you spiritually. It's undermining your witness. It's undermining your position at the workplace or in the school where you are. It undermines you. It undercuts you. And it, it eventually just dissolves the witness that you want to have and the life you want to live. You've got to be a person of honesty. You must gird yourself with truth. Now, that's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy for you to be honest in your profession. But I will tell you this, it is possible for you to be honest in your profession, and if it is not, if dishonesty is intrinsic to your profession, then you probably need to change professions, okay? Because honesty is non-negotiable. In the family I grew up in, there was zero tolerance for a lie. My dad had 13 kids, and he wasn't going to have any of us lie to him, all right? So if you lied... That was it, man. You got the penalty you deserved. No negotiation. No meeting halfway. The lie was it. Zero tolerance for the lie. That's what I see in the book of Ephesians. That's what I understand in the belt of truth. You get up, you put on the belt of truth, and you will say, I am not a liar. I am not a fraud. I am not pretending. I'm not going to deceive people. Not to get a sale, not to run a company, not to do anything in my profession. I will not be dishonest. Why? Because the spiritual battle you fight depends upon you being an honest person. You've got to put on the belt of truth. If you can't do this, what's going to happen to your marriage? What's going to happen to your family? We cannot be liars. The lie erodes everything we are seeking to build It damages every foundation. See, our battle's not against the people we're lying to. Our battle is spiritual. And to win this spiritual battle, you've got to tell the truth. You've got to be an honest person. Put on the belt of truth. Thank God for the belt of truth. Secondly, Thank God for the breastplate of righteousness. That breastplate goes right here. Covers your heart. When I read that, I thought that's got to be the righteousness of Christ. It can't be my self-righteousness. 
and I believe it is. It is the righteousness of Christ. Jesus Christ is the righteous one, and when I receive him as Savior, repenting of my sin, for, uh, receiving his forgiveness, when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Christ. So I have imputed righteousness. He reckons me righteous based on the righteousness of his perfect son, Jesus. And I believe that's true, and i got to walk in that, okay? i got to know that I am reckoned righteous by a holy God because Jesus Christ died on the cross for me, and I am clothed with his righteousness. So I need to put on this breastplate of righteousness, but I cannot stop there because the Apostle Paul's been talking about all these things. Some of them he puts into lists about behaviors that erode my Christian life and bring me down. So this righteousness is also a practical kind of righteousness. In other words, I am receiving the righteousness of Christ, but I'm also practicing that righteousness. Just like I receive the truth in Jesus, and then I practice the truth, I receive his righteousness, and then I practice what is right. So not only must I be a person of honesty, I must also be a person of integrity so that my behavior lines up with my words. Now, we already know this to be true. Nothing undoes us so quickly as an immoral act, as willfully disobeying God, and we know it. We practice things. We take on habits. We get into relationships that we know from the beginning are outside of the will of God. And then we wonder why we don't feel his love and joy and peace, why we're not flourishing spiritually. It's because we have been disobedient. We're not practicing righteousness as an outgrowth of that imputed righteousness which God has given us. Your behavior matters spiritually. That's it. And God is calling us to be holy as he is holy. You already know how weak need you are spiritually when you go to that place of disobedience. You already know that. You've already experienced the spiritual slam that you get when you disobey and go against the word of God. It already, it's already happened to you. You know it in your life, what it does to you. You can't win this way. There is a discipline here about putting on the armor of God that you must practice if you're going to succeed spiritually in the work God's called you to do, in the person he's called you to be. You must have the discipline of truthfulness, and you must have the discipline of right living. This righteousness is both spiritual and practical, in your life. If these two things do not pertain in you, you cannot win this battle out there. It is a spiritual battle, and unrighteousness and dishonesty unravels it for you. Now, the third thing, you thank God for those sandals of witness, the preparation of the gospel of peace, those sandals of witness that go on your feet. I can't help but think of Isaiah saying, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You've read that before, right? I don't know if I could say those Papuans had beautiful feet, but I will tell you that I noticed their feet. One, one thing was they were barefooted, okay, which I didn't quite understand in that very rugged mountainous country 
They say it is the most rugged country on earth, Papua New Guinea. I was on the back porch of the missionary home, and they gathered around me, these four or five men, and they had these shells that they used as a medium of exchange in the mountains, and they wanted to give me some and maybe me to give them something too. And as they sat down and squatted down there on that back porch, I saw their feet. And they were wider than any feet I'd seen and thicker. They almost looked like boots, these feet the Papuans had. Everywhere they went, they were barefooted. They never invented the wheel. And they walked in the ruggedest country on earth. And their feet adapted to that. You see, you got to take care of your feet. We've tried to give people shoes in the third world, and we gave some shoes to guys in a craw. They only used them when they were playing soccer. <laughs> They'd get their shoes when they were playing soccer. The rest of the time, they just went barefooted. Okay? The best pair of shoes I own, you know what they are? Army issue. I mean, they never wear out. They're just solid. They're strong. I put those shoes on. I feel like I can do anything. You know, you strap them up. And you're ready to go. The warrior's got to take care of his feet. So there's two ways that these sandals work. The first way is you deliver the good news and your feet are beautiful. You put on those sandals of the gospel of peace and someone else is blessed. But the other way it works is you put on those sandals of the gospel of peace and you are blessed. Because you are protected as a warrior against the thing that will most readily bring you down damaging your feet. How do you keep your feet healthy as a Christian? You keep your witness right there in front of you. You make sure that you're sharing the gospel with those folks around you, that you're ready to speak a word for Christ, to let folks know where you stand with Jesus as your Savior, that you're trusting in Him. This is a marvelous protection for you in your walk. If you slink away from identifying publicly with Jesus in the witness that he's given you to bear, if you sneak away from that, if you quit putting on these sandals, you're going to lose this battle. you got to have these on. All right? It takes truth. It takes righteousness. It takes a witness for Christ that you are willing to put on Every day, identifying with him in the workplace, at school, wherever you may go. Unashamedly saying, yes, I'm a Jesus person. I've trusted in Jesus as Savior. This is how I understand the world. Feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Then thank God for the shield of faith. Take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the fiery evils of the uh, arrows of the evil one. How's your faith? You worried about your faith? Do you have any faith? Do you ever think, oh, I'm a person of little faith? Jesus found that out about his disciples, you know. Peter, James, John, Andrew, those 12 guys that changed the world and turned it upside down. <laughs> they all had weak faith. They... Had that incident where the man brought his child to them to heal him. He couldn't do anything, you know. Jesus says, where's your faith? How is it you have no faith? And he turned around and he tells the story. He said, if you had faith even like a mustard seed, 
Even the tiniest seed in the garden, almost invisible to the naked eye. If you had that kind of faith, you could uproot mountains. It only takes a little. Why would Jesus say such a thing to his disciples and to us? Because God's given the gift of faith to everybody in the room, all right? You've got faith. Maybe it's a smoldering wick. Maybe it's a little bitty faith. That's okay. Look, you've got to take up this shield of faith. It's part of the necessary equipment that you must, you must be able and willing to trust God in the midst of this battle. It's not generic faith. It's not just, okay, I'm going to trust in X. I had somebody once tell me they had faith in a doorknob. You know, they didn't believe in God, so they believed in the doorknob. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I kind of get that faith is a good thing to have just in generic sense, but we're not talking about generic faith. We're talking about faith in the God who saved you and the Christ who went to the cross for you. Faith that is anchored in the reality of a sovereign God who watches over you and has the power to help you, all right? So even if your faith is little bitty, part of what God's doing today in this worship experience is he is pointing out this little faith to you and he's saying, if you will use it, that's enough. You take up the shield of faith. You pick up that little faith you have. And even if it's a little, it's enough. God will use it in your life. It will be the protection that you need. Now look, you can't please God without this faith, even if it's tiny. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So you've got to take it up. And this faith, which you take up, even though it's tiny, it is powerful enough to put out every flaming arrow that is launched at you by the evil one. It will conquer every one of them. If you will walk in this, if you will take that little bit of faith and every day put it on as part of your armor, it will help you achieve victory it'll put out those evil darts that are launched against you you want to retaliate you want to strike back you think your battles against flesh and blood when those arrows come your way but it's not and faith is the way that you handle it you just trust God in the moment of trouble trust God when you are under attack when you when somebody has betrayed you when you've been stabbed in the back when the arrow comes your way, you take that faith and you trust God in the midst of it. The shield of faith is essential equipment. Then you have the helmet of salvation. Thank God for the helmet of salvation. When you run out of things to thank God for, you can always say, thank you God for saving me. Thank you that I am your child. Thank you that you adopted me into your family. Thank you that you prepared for me a home in heaven. There's so many things to be grateful for embedded in this helmet of salvation. And if you'll remember that you have this helmet when you go out to school or work, that you've got this helmet on, it will give you confidence. It will help you feel secure in living for Christ in the place where he's put you. The helmet of salvation, essential equipment. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, this is essential equipment, okay? 
someone told me this week, I've been praying, but I've been neglecting the word, and I feel that I'm weak because of it. And the Lord just planted people in my life to help me better understand the full armor of God. Okay? you got to have it all. It's not just prayer. It's not just faith. It's also the word. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So I'm asking you, are you neglecting the word of God? How do you expect to win a spiritual battle if you're neglecting the Word of God? How, how's that going to happen? It's, it's not against flesh and blood. It's against these principalities and powers, the spiritual forces of darkness in this world. How are you going to win if you neglect the Word of God? You say, well, my routine's just... I know, isn't it terrible? <laughs> Life changes on you. You're working nights instead of days. You have children and grandchildren somebody moves in or you move to a different place and all of a sudden the routine you had that you were comfortable in you're doing your devotion you were opening the word of God now suddenly it's just not happening in your life you're you're a student or you're at a new place of work and and things have just changed for you and since then you just really haven't got back into your routine this worship service is about you deciding I'm going to find again what works for me to bring the word of God daily back into my life all right, Because I can't win this sp- battle spiritually if I'm not in the Word of God. So the Apostle Paul says, look, I want you to pray. I want you to have faith. I want you to do what is right. I want you to tell the truth. And I want you to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So let's just figure it out, okay? Let's, let's get with God and say, Lord, when in my busy day can I have an experience of your Word that feeds my soul and helps me be the person you've called me to be. It's got to happen. This is important, okay? Just like this person confessed to me this week, there are other folks sitting in the pews here who wonder why the love, joy, peace isn't flowing, why they feel empty spiritually. Maybe part of it is that the sword of the Spirit has been neglected in your life. You need the whole armor of God. You're fighting a spiritual battle This has got to be there, all right? Thank God for his victory, for the final stand. In this text, we have the word stand used three or four times so that you can stand against the wiles of the devil, having done everything to stand. Stand, therefore. So you got this battle going on. Sometimes it feels like an avalanche that's opposing you, that's against you. How are you going to take your stand? You're going to stand knowing that the God who holds the world in his hand holds you there too. Now, every soldier falls down. We all fall down. You fall down. I fall down. We all fall down. I'm not talking to perfect people. I'm talking to fallen people. Who have been saved by grace and still we fall. Everybody falls down. This battle is not won by perfection. It's not like you can be the person God's called you to be if you'll just be perfect. No. You're not going to be perfect. You fall down. So what are you going to be? Persistent. (laughs) That's what. 
You're going to keep going. You're going to be determined. When you fall down, you get back up again. That's what grace is all about. When you fall down, you don't sideline yourself. You don't go sit on a bench, you know. Say, coach, I'm just not going to play anymore. When you mess up, you don't sideline yourself. You go to God and say, God, I need grace in my life. Your grace is greater than all my sin. I've fallen down, but I'm ready to get up again. We admire the athletes who just keep going at it. That halfback who never stops churning his legs. And we watch him in slow motion as he just keeps moving through that pile and he finally gets to that first down marker and we say, man, that guy's terrific, isn't he? And the same is true with every other athlete and all the heroes that we have. They are heroes not because they're perfect, but because they are persistent. They persevere. They keep going. When the difficulty arises, they get back up. If they got knocked down, they dust themselves up, and often they get back up. And today's worship is about you seeing the grace of God to get back up, even though you've been flattened. Even though you have failed, even though you have fallen, to get back up. You see, you want to be standing. And the challenge to stand is about how often we fall. So how do you stand? You get back up. We are in need of the grace of God today. Because there's all kind of folks who can prevail and accomplish the things God assigned for them. If they don't just give up. If you don't give up on yourself. I hear people say, I just can't live the Christian life. Who can? Who can? The Christian life is about God's forgiveness flowing to you every day. After you messing up, being able to say, Lord, forgive me. And honey, please forgive me too, you know. I mean, it is the daily forgiveness of God's grace that pours through your life that enables you to be the person God's called you to be. Let's bow together. As we bow our heads, if you feel like you're the one who's fallen down, I don't want anybody looking around, okay? Let's just close our eyes, bow our heads. And you'd say, pray for me. I feel like I'm the one that's fallen down. And I want grace to get back up. Would you slip your hand up? Yes, God bless you. Yes, God bless you. Others, just pray for me. I got flattened. And I I want grace to get back up. Yes, God bless. Dear God. Lord, I pray for these who just need grace to get back up and get back going. Lord, that you will strengthen the weak knees. You will straighten that back. You will lift their chin. And Lord, you will give them boldness and courage and determination and confidence in their walk with you. Lord, thank you for your marvelous forgiveness that fully cleanses us completely of every sin as we come to you in repentance.
Thank you, God, for the restoration you desire to give and you freely give when we fall down. Lord, thank you for picking us up. And I pray that, Lord, you'll pick us up today. God, I pray for those who have lived on the periphery, who have sidelined themselves in this race of the Christian life. God, that today they would see that you're not through with them. And they have work to do and a purpose in your world. And that's why they're here. And Lord, that you would call them back to full surrender and complete engagement in the work of kingdom building and the proclamation of the gospel. God, I pray for those who feel that they have failed beyond your ability to restore them. God, they will know that's just a lie of the devil. That's just part of his schemes. Lord, how quickly, how lovingly you restore all who come to you. God, I pray for those who have little faith, that this week they might exercise that faith, that they might live in it and walk in it, that little bit of faith they have, and that they might see the evidence that it just takes a little to uproot the mountains in their lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.